Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Inject into our hearts, O Almighty God, the peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm speaking tonight about the subject of anxiety. That gut sense of being hunted down by worry, paralyzed by panic, preoccupied with realistic or unrealistic concern. Before I was ordained, I had to take a test to see if I had psychopathic tendencies. The test was called the Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory. I passed, so I guess it's all right. This test um, not only points out uh, very deep-seated psychological problems that people may have, it also tracks through the years the rate of uh, anxiety that people experience. And so what's fascinating is that they've done this examination since the 1940s and have discovered that since the 1940s, generalized anxiety disorders have risen by 25%. I think that's remarkable given that our current cultural moment involves many more comforts than were experienced in the 1940s and 50s. We have better doctors, better diagnoses. Uh, We have a better understanding in some ways of psychology. We have more medication. And yet, anxiety has not decreased, but increased. Uh, In fact, the the Society of Anxiety and Depression, (laughs) sounds like something you'd want to join, right? The Society (laughs) of Anxiety and Depression says that generalized anxiety disorders in the United States have risen uh, to the point where 40 million Americans experience it on a regular basis, and uh, 25% of our teens experience generalized anxiety. As someone who has experienced anxiety at a pretty deep level, I always liken it to having a dog kennel in your brain. Uh, A dog kennel with lots of unsettling choruses of barks, yelps, whimpers, and howls. And as soon as your brain starts to calm itself, one little whimper starts the whole kennel barking again. And so my question tonight that I seek to answer is this. Is there any serious and enduring source of help for kennel brain? And I believe that there is. And it entails a shift in perception from the many to the one. And I get this insight from Jesus' interaction with his two devoted hosts. He says to them, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And then speaking of Mary, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The many and the one. Martha represents the many, She is a woman with multiple concerns, juggling many things. Jesus says about her, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And I would like to begin with sympathy for Martha and all of the Marthas in the world, and many of them are in this room, even right now. 
We have to have sympathy given her particular cultural moment and her position within that culture. This is a hospitality culture in which a meal was more than just food. It was the mortar of friendship. This is why in Jesus' day, the dining room was sometimes referred to as the mikdash mayat, or the miniature sanctuary of a family. It was a place in which deep contact was made through hospitality and communication. And so having dinner with somebody was a deeply ceremonial and deeply religious act. It involved, for example, especially within Judaism, the proper selection of ingredients. You were a Jew who was devout. You wouldn't eat about half of the things that the Greeks or Romans would eat. You would have to be very selective regarding food, choosing only clean food to give your guests. And you would also, at least in Jesus' time, have to use clean vessels in which to prepare that food so that you don't contaminate clean food, make it unclean food, and then thereby make your guests unclean by eating clean food that has been tainted in unclean vessels. And then you would offer the the guest a a hospitable greeting that had almost a liturgical quality to it. It would sound far more official than what we often do when we're greeting our guests. And there would be a formal presentation of the food, and there would be conversation, sometimes prepared conversation, that people would engage in. And this was all to bind together relationships. This is why there are so many meals in the New Testament and why they are such rich and vivid and often spiritually significant scenes. How many spiritual things happen in the New Testament in the course of a meal? It's because these occurred in the Mikdash Mayat, the sanctuary, the miniature sanctuary of the home. This is Martha's world. She's living in this world in which you must be an active host a prepared host for your guest. And she does several things in this passage in verse 38. She is the one, not Mary, who welcomes Jesus into the home. And again, that involves some ceremony. In verse 40, uh, she engages in not just serving, but much serving, no doubt involving multiple courses and presentations of food and making sure the guests were happy and well-sustained with good wine. And then in verse 41, when things aren't going the way she had planned in terms of the presentation of the dinner, she offers a course correction. Uh, sometimes we call this in church triangulation. Don't Please don't ever do that. It's, it's really hard. Anyway, um, where she says to Jesus, she doesn't talk to Mary. Did you notice that? She talks to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. She wants to get Jesus on her side because she believes that Mary is actually, in some ways, acting inappropriately outside of her realm. She should be serving next to Martha, serving this Lord, this king who is coming to dinner. What I think is interesting is that Martha, who is lightly chastised by Jesus... That she isn't, uh, that she's, she's anxious about many things, but her anxiety isn't due to sin. You know, she's not robbing a bank or polluting a lake. She's, she's preparing food for the Lord. She's putting on a meal to show honor and deference to a guest. She wants relationship. She wants connection. And that happens within the context of sharing the best that they had to offer. She's being productive for Jesus. But Jesus 
uh, rebukes it. More than that, the author gives us his take. Luke says in verse 40 that Martha was distracted with much serving. Serving there is the word diakonia. We translate that in other places as the word deacon. She's serving. But she is distracted with much serving. It's a negative term. She's distracted. This is what the New Testament does to us. It takes our customs and our categories and our patterns and it upsets them a little bit. It says you can take a good thing, like serving somebody a great meal and trying to connect with them. You can take a good thing, and if you make it an ultimate thing, it can be a distracting thing. I get to witness this all the time with children in miniature ways. I remember uh, it was some time blurs for me. I think it was a few months ago when Ella, I was telling her, please go upstairs and brush your teeth and then go to bed. She said, okay. And so Ella was, uh, went upstairs, and like 20 minutes went by. I'm thinking, wow, and this is impressive hygiene. I mean, she's really working at this to make it happen, you know? So I went upstairs, and she was in, the, she was in our guest room on the table drawing a picture. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? And she looked at me with such incredulity, and she said, I'm drawing a pony. I said, I sent you upstairs to brush your teeth. And she said, the pony is very pretty. <laughs> I said, I have no doubt. But, but that isn't the reason that I sent you upstairs, right? So what she was doing, it was a good thing. You know, she's practicing for her role as a Rembrandt. I mean, she's, she's getting there. But it wasn't, the, it wasn't the best thing. And this is what's occurring in this scene when uh, Martha takes a good thing, turns it into an ultimate thing, and it becomes a distracting thing. And can we relate to the manyness of Martha? The manyness of Martha, this woman who is uh, affected and afflicted by expectations and necessities and customs, and they, they cause kennel brain. They cause a lot of barking in her head. And so she's very burdened, and Jesus points this out. And I'm wondering if you can relate to that. I mean, what dog is barking at you, or how many dogs are barking at you? Whether it's the expectations of your family and you're about to spend Thanksgiving with them. You know, Kyrie eleison. I mean, you're going to do that. And, or maybe it's the fact that, you know, you're looking toward the holiday season and you actually don't have enough money to do it this year. Or maybe you're married to somebody who spends too much and you're a little stingy and you have these very predictable battles every time the holidays come up. Or maybe it's you're in this, you're in this romantic situation, but you feel a little ambivalent, so every time you're with the person you feel a little stressed because you're not sure if you want to commit or not. Or maybe it's just the daily grind. I mean, how many times a week do you have to go to Aldi? Like, I think the answer is four. (laughs) Don't you get sick of Aldi? And laundry and dishes and all of those barking noises that haunt our brains, uh, that make us feel anxiety. Um, or maybe it's, you know, technology. You know, technology, you would think, is a gift from the gods, right, to make your life better. It's supposed to make everything simpler. It's supposed to, you know, better living through technology. Wasn't that GE's slogan? How's that working out for you? So I was reading uh, this critique of the tech world from a techie. This is what he writes about his own experience, but kind of universalizing it. You wake up. You check your iPhone immediately. Something happened overnight in the world. People are upset. 
the actual news is uncertain. It's too soon for context, but it's not too soon for everyone to be angry. You shower, get dressed, get ready for your job. Work emails flood into your inbox, some automatic, some written by type A early risers. Your phone buzzes with a notification from an app reminding you to work out today. A news app tells you more about what happened last night, though details are still blurry. Your buzzing tablet is reminding you that Facebook is reminding you that you have friends who have birthdays, some of their birthdays you missed yesterday. Your personal email reminds you that your car insurance is due soon, that your credit card expires next month, and you only have a week left to review that hotel you stayed in in the summer. You move these emails to a folder entitled, Deal With This Soon, which now reports 35 unread emails. <laughs> you work on your way to work. While you drive, you take calls and send a text to book your long-delayed dentist appointment, and you feel guilty that you still use an old-fashioned non-electric toothbrush. You don't feel guilty about using work time for personal email. There's no real distinction anymore between work time and you time, certainly not on weekdays. Those two times are parasitically intertwined as long as you're awake. It's not that it's corporate policy. It's not that you work at a bad place. It's just the way things are now. You can't imagine how things would be arranged differently, how worlds could be detached. Everything is the same now. That weird pain in your gut comes back in the afternoon. You know better than to try to diagnose it online, but you do so anyhow. Maybe you have indigestion. Maybe you have cancer. You do eat too many Hot Pockets. And cancer isn't a death sentence anymore. Though, or at least not exactly a death sentence, or at least it's very case by case, and there's no such thing as cancer anyway. There's only fractal taxonomization of millions of individual cells within individual people, which you reassure yourself very likely doesn't include you. You try to eat the right kind of food for lunch, but it's very unclear what the right kind of food is. The right sort of diet is more unclear with every passing day. After work, you obey your fitness app, which reminds you to work out. You work out and listen to podcasts about the American obsession with podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> then you drive to see your friends and check your email again. So, so much is happening in the world. Violence in Berkeley, civil war in the Middle East, catastrophe in the Caribbean, pollution in China. It's all happening so fast that you can't make sense of it. It feels like someone jammed a heavy thumb on the world's fast-forward button. Your friends are doing well, but they seem a little uncertain about their jobs, their homes, their family, their future. A few seem to have too many possibilities to choose from. They seem to be the ones with the most beautiful, enviable, carefully curated Instagram feeds. You soon carefully curate your Instagram feed to outdo their Instagram feed, thereby making them feel jealous after you feel jealous. After you head home, the pain in your gut is back. You want to watch something good, but between Netflix and YouTube and Amazon Prime and iTunes, there are far too many choices, and you end up watching a Marvel movie instead, even though you've already seen it three times. But that is very reassuring, heroes and villains, right and wrong. Then you go to bed, put your phone down, silence it, try to sleep. Then you give, give up sleeping, pick up your phone again, as you do every night. Your late-night people are again upset. Something has happened in the world. I'm wondering, did that spike your anxiety a little bit, or can you at least relate to that world? Does that speak to you? Does that address where you are? Are you going to be there tonight? Like, maybe, right? Maybe. But this is the Martha world, where there's a lot going on. And just to manage, I'm not even talking about sin. I'm just talking about, like, managing your life creates within us this terrible, 
vexing, sometimes paralyzing anxiety. This is life now for so many of us. And that's Martha's world. And Jesus speaks into this world and says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things. But Mary, Mary is having a different experience. Mary represents not the many, but the one. A singular focus. It isn't that the chaos isn't real for Mary. The chaos is happening all around her. She can hear it. She can see it. It's right there. And yet, her focus is not on the many things that are occurring, but on the one man that is sitting right in front of her. And Mary is not afflicted in that moment by kennel brain. She is still, she is seated, and she is listening. The text says she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This is not a posture of romantic adoration. This is a posture of a pupil, of a student, uh, sitting at the rabbi's feet. We know that because of Acts 22, where Paul, recounting his own uh, pupil history, said of his earlier life, I sat at the feet and was educated by Gamaliel, who was the most prominent theologian of the day. Sat at his feet. The Mishnah, which is originally oral tradition that was eventually written down a few centuries after Christ, says this, and this rabbinic understanding would have been prominent in Jesus' own day. Let your house be a meeting place for rabbis and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with great thirst. And then it concludes, but speak not with womankind. Well, Jesus is jettisoning that logic. And so is Mary. Because Mary is posturing herself as a student. And Jesus is unconventional in this way. And he, he accepts Mary as a student. And in fact, praises her, not just in the vision, not just in, before the eyes of this dinner party, but for all time, for it was written right here, for our learning and our well-being. But Jesus was unconventional in his time for accepting all sorts of students. Uh, in John chapter 4, we see the same thing occurring when the, the, uh, the woman at the well was having a little theological debate with Jesus, and she was also a Samaritan. And the disciples were away getting lunch. They brought lunch back to Jesus. And they were shocked to see Jesus speaking, not so much with a Samaritan, that was weird enough, but speaking with a woman. But Jesus wasn't upset when he was speaking with a woman. And so, uh, Jesus is addressing her in this situation, like the woman at the well, as a student. And Martha is spying this and becomes distressed and tries to get Jesus to stop, to stop Mary from doing what she's doing. Largely because Martha needed help in the kitchen, but also maybe because she believed that this position was inappropriate for her sister. But notice what Jesus says about Mary's decision. Mary has chosen the one thing that is necessary, it is a good portion, and it shall not be taken away from her. This is a contrast between what Martha is seeking after and what Mary is seeking after. Martha is seeking to please the Lord with a fantastic meal and to connect with him through that medium. The problem is with a meal, no matter how great it is, it's passing. 
quite literally, <laughs> digestible. But more than that, you know, I was in Toronto once, and I had a filet mignon that was butterflied, and it was stuffed with lobster meat. It was like walking through the gates of paradise. <laughs> it was an amazing meal for about 20 minutes. And then I'm like, okay, well, what's next? You know, creme brulee. But after the creme brulee, what's next? I had a big appetite. But, uh, but right? These things are fleeting. All of the things that we enjoy, or so many of them that we enjoy, are fleeting. But Jesus is saying there's one thing that isn't fleeting. There's one thing that I'm offering that Mary is receiving that will never leave her. It will live within her for the rest of her life, and now will live within the, the Christian consciousness for the rest of its existence because of this moment. This reminds me of uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus was speaking to the people that received the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Do you remember that? That Jesus takes this young boy's lunch and turns it into a miracle meal and feeds the multitudes, and they're very excited about this, and they're thinking ambitiously, this man could make a great politician. He could really solve our problems. And Jesus tells this crowd, do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That Jesus is indicating uh, not simply to, that Mary ought to be a disciple, but that Martha can be a disciple as well. That, that all of us can take our eyes off of the many and focus on the one and that that is how we'll receive something that endures. Because the thing about our given context and our given concerns is that they are all fleeting. They cause our anxiety to spike one day, and then they disappear the next. But we need something that is not contextual. We need something that is steady. Uh, and so we have Martha, who is producing for the Lord and very frenetic and active. And then we have Mary, who is receiving something from the Lord. And, uh, and people would critique her because she's not being productive. But in Christianity, you can't really be productive for God unless you are first made a recipient of something else. You have to be given a gift in order to have a gift to give away. And so Mary is humbling herself to learn rather than produce. So... Let me conclude with a word about living in a fallen world, because I think living in a post-Genesis 3 world entails chaos and therefore anxiety. This is what's so hard about life. I wish as your minister I could promise you that the kennel of the mind will go out of business one of these days, that the noise will stop. But if I can't promise you that, is there any peace? Is there any zen? <laughs> is there any sense of tranquility that we can experience in this life? Uh, and if so, how do we experience peace in a world of manyness? How does that happen? I suppose I could give you a very simple prescription, like you could leave this place and take your iPhone and hit it with a hammer. You could be a Luddite. You could just smash all of your technology. But here's the difficult thing. Even if you got rid of all the tech, there are still people in your life that cause you anxiety, and you can't hit them with hammers, or you, you go to jail, and then you'll be anxious about other things. Uh, so I'm not sure there's an easy way out of this one. And so what's the, what's the cure? There are many helps out there, but there is a central source of help. There is a central one, and we learn 
We learn about it from the posture of Mary because she is able to shift from the many to the one and that one thing won't ever be taken away. And that one thing, that one person is the unwavering Christ who was never shaped by context. That's what made me fall in love with Jesus when I was so young, you know, because if Jesus was with, you know, people in the, in the Middle Eastern equivalent of Nantucket, or if he was with people from the equivalent of Butler, whether he was, you know, in the mud or on the mountaintop, whether he was uh, with politicians or with common people, with the religious or irreligious, he would always be Jesus. He was always steady, unaffected by his surroundings, unaffected by his context. And we have this unwavering Christ. We have this unwavering source of support. And Peter says about him, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. And how many times do we go to everybody but Jesus when we have a concern? We gripe, and we, I was, we, there's other ways to say gripe, right? We complain, <laughs> we're angry, or we, we have fear, and so what do we do? We talk to our friends, and we, if we're mad at somebody, we never talk to them. We talk about them to other people, and we, we try to expiate all the stuff on the inside. And Jesus is like the last resort after everything else has been tried. You know, this, it, this happened to me. I, I spoke about this a couple years ago, but toward the end of my sabbatical in 2015, Monique and I went to uh, you know, Ireland with the children for three weeks, and we stayed with my friend Janet, and we were in this little village called Muckris, which was beautiful because right in front of you, the Irish coastland. Right behind you, mountains. It's like heaven, right? So you would think I would be like Francis of Assisi. I would, be, I would you know, be very peaceful. But it didn't happen because there were no distractions in Ireland. No phone, no internet, very limited cable with very dull Irish programming. And, uh, and, and no car. So I'm stuck in this little house and having to cook all day. And really, because my children, that's all they do is eat. And, uh, and so stuck in this little house, and you can't walk. The nearest grocery store is four miles away, and so you're just there. And it was driving me a little crazy. And for all sorts of reasons that I still don't fully understand, I, I kept having panic attacks. But I was venting, of course, to Monique and venting to Janet. And I was saying, what do I do? And, and they said eventually, well, you could like talk to God about it. Isn't that interesting? I'm a minister. You would think that that would be the first impulse. I mean, it wasn't the first impulse, you know? It was down the list. And I thought, well, that's, that's a novel idea. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe I should do that. So I, I went up, I, I uh, packed some lunch, and I w took a hike up the mountain behind us. And at the top of the mountain, somebody had made an Ebenezer, you know, a pile of stones right there on the top of the mountain, because other people have evidently prayed up there too, and I was praying. And I called out to God, I really did, and it was right from my heart. And I said, uh, I need you to help me understand what is happening in me. What is going on? Do you have a word for me? And as soon as I said that, it was like lightning, like white lightning right to the heart. And Psalm 24, verse 1 came to mind, which is, the earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. And I said, really? <laughs> Do you have anything better? <laughs> 
Like, that's it? That sounds like a placebo. That's a, that's a verse they put on those ridiculous Christian calendars they send in the mail, the ones you get for free under a picture of daffodils. Like that's all, that what? Like, nothing more profound? I want Kierkegaard. I mean, get something. Isn't that, I know, I know. But I kept pushing back, and it kept coming back. It was thundering again and again in my heart. And I said, well, maybe like the Bible has something to teach me. So I sat with it for a little while. I, re- I sat there for a, quite a while, and I, I felt addressed. Have you ever felt personally addressed by God where he's just dealing with you very squarely? My heart was taking in something, and it was something like this. Ethan, your anxiety is because you think you're the rector. You think you're the rector of your whole life. You think you're the rector of your world. You think that everything is under your direct management, and if you mess up, you think you'll lose everything you love because you talk a lot about grace, but you don't really believe in it for yourself. For everybody else, sure, but not for you. You think that if you mess up, you'll lose your family and your friendships and your church and your community and all the love in your life. But all of those things... And all of those people that you are terrified to lose, they all belong to me. And how about you let me, like the Lord, be the rector? And that wasn't a word of accusation. It was a word of complete relief. How about you let me be the rector? You don't have to be the rector because the earth is the Lord's and all that is therein, everything. My role in my own life is small. It's small, never more uh, than the co-pilot on this journey, and often a lot less. And uh, so I think that's the answer for me. I hope it is for you to turn from the chaos of the many to have a singular focus on the one. It's not that the dogs start barking. It's that the enduring center becomes more important than all of the barking, and the noise diminishes, not in its volume, but in its effect. You may remember this hymn, or the lyrics in this hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The only help for me regarding my own anxiety, is to know more and more deeply the love of God that is totally fixed. This, by the way, is a benefit of having a Christ that is unwavering, because it means his love for you is unwavering, whether you're anxious or whether you're not, whether you're in a foul mood or whether you're happy, whether you're praying or whether you refuse to pray. The unwavering Christ doesn't waver when it comes to you. And that unwaveringness can have a gloriously freeing effect when it makes a home in the heart. And so I just pray that your anxiety would be diminished, not because we take a rifle to all of the dogs in the kennel, but because we have a new focus, a new center, an unwavering Christ whose love does not diminish, come what may. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.